You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. This time we want to dismiss uh, children up to second grade to uh, Children's Church. So if you have children up through the second grade and they would like to go and join our children's church ministry, they're welcome to do that. While they're exiting, I want to welcome our ladies back to town. Heard you guys had a great uh, women's retreat. We were a little bit envious. But you know, when Tammy goes away, one of the things that I uh, experience is just great appreciation for all that she does every day. Because, boy, when she's removed from the family, it's just not the same place that when she's there kind of keeping things organized and running. And so, ladies, uh, I hope your husband's experience was the same of mine as mine, is that uh, my heart is just filled with uh, real gratitude for the work that Tammy does every single day that I honestly have to say I take for granted. And, and I shouldn't. And I, I want to work on showing more appreciation for just you know, how quickly the dishes pile up and the floor gets dirty and the laundry doesn't get done. And somehow magically that just takes care of itself in our home. And so uh, I know it is uh, actually the work of her hands. And so uh, we are so glad that you had a chance to go away and uh, that God answered our prayers and just gave you a great time connecting to him and each other. And so I pray that that spiritual high will, will last for you and carry you just to a whole new uh, level of intimacy with God. <clears throat> you know, there's not a Christian who doesn't wrestle with the presence of sin in their life. All of us I do, I do. You know, Pat did a great job last week of just reminding us that the conviction for sin is really a confirmation that we're children of God that the, there's a bigger problem when you're able to sin and you feel no urgency to change that behavior in your life. But there's a huge difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation actually pushes us or draws us away from God, where conviction draws us to God. And it's, if you don't understand this in your life, it can, it can really cause you, um, you know, great spiritual harm. The Apostle Paul the author of Colossians wrote about his struggle in Romans chapter 7, where he wrote these words. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can you relate to that? I think all of us find ourselves there. And this morning, Paul is really going to address how we find victory over sin, the, the, the process of not becoming sinless, but sinning less. Because if we're not, as Christians, growing in our maturation, reflecting more and more of God's image and his character in our lives, there's a real question as to whether or not we're, we're children of God. Yeah. That question haunted me as a young man. You see, I was brought up in a Christian home where uh, I heard the gospel from really day one. It was just a part of the culture of our home. We knew the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was our only hope of eternal life. And the danger for those of us who grow up knowing that all the time is it becomes an intellectual fact, but sometimes it doesn't become the practice of our lives. And it wasn't until I graduated from high school 
And I realized that my life actually reflected more of the world than it did of Jesus. That I began to wonder whether I had been guilty of kind of, you know, buying a ticket to heaven uh, versus believing in the work of Jesus on my behalf to transform me uh, from death to life. And I think a whole lot of us need to ask that same question. Because for a whole lot of Christians, we're a little bit too comfortable with the presence of sin in our lives. And we see our salvation more as a ticket to excuse our sin than the power to remove sin from our lives. And God has called us to be holy. God has made us holy. And we are going to struggle internally until our outward reality reflects the inward truth of who we are in Christ. This is how it worked out in my life. I began to really ask the question, can I or can I really be comfortable or secure in the fact that heaven is my home and that God, what God has promised me um, in eternity will be true if the promises that God has not given me this side of heaven um, are not able to be taken hold of? So Jesus has said this, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. The tension for me was, there was little power in my life, and my witness and walk was very, very weak. And so I had to ask myself, wow, you know, am I missing something? Now, I think this is exactly the question that a lot of Colossians were asking. These were people who had come to faith, they'd heard the gospel, they had started to grow in their faith, but then they were struggling with the maturation process. And as a result of that, false teachers had found their way into the church, and they were beginning to propose and preach false doctrines that were saying, you need Jesus plus this to mature or to grow or to experience the fullness of God. And so the Judaizers promoted legalism, returned to the Old Testament dietary laws and sacrifices. Then there were those who were, who were promoting angelic worship and that an additional experience was required to get the knowledge that was needed to move you beyond where you were into the fullness of God. Then there were those that were just aesthetics and they just believed, you know, if you don't buffet the body and torture yourself and put yourself under all of these rules and regulations, you'll never grow up in the faith. And none of that is true, but then the question is, is how do you move beyond the natural fleshly desires that our body still craves even after our spirit has been made new in Christ? And that's a challenge for all of us. And if we're not experiencing a level of victory, it becomes an instrument that the devil uses to steal from us all the security and all the peace and all the hope that God wants us to know. And it makes us vulnerable to looking outside of the gospel and the truth of what God has provided because we haven't been able to take the gospel and see its power transform us. And so this morning, Paul is writing to Christians who want to grow in their faith, I believe like you and me, but probably have struggled. And he has just spent the last chapter exposing the lies, and now he's talking about what the truth looks like, fleshed out, incarnated in our lives. And he paints a picture of what true spirituality looks like. And he tells us this, that true spirituality reflects the image and character of God by removing sin from our lives so that we actually reveal Christ to all who see us. So open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. We're looking at verses 5 through 11. 
And we want to get a clear picture of what true spirituality looks like, practically manifested in our lives. The Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Pray with me if you would. Lord, we just sung, all I am is yours. And Lord, I believe we, we lifted that as a prayer to you. Because I believe we're here this morning, Lord, because we want that to be a true statement that all we are is yours. Um, Father, and yet if we're honest, so many of us still struggle with some of the things that Paul has just highlighted in this text. And so, Lord, I pray that through your spirit today, you give us insight as to how to draw on the power of the gospel, how to really embrace the reality that we are in you, and in you we are absolutely perfect and righteous and holy, and that, Lord, you have freed us from the penalty and the power of sin. And, Father, I pray that you give us the ability to put to death and to take off all that is not of you in our lives, so that we true canly can say, all I am is yours. God, for we long to see your glory, your majesty, your honor be reflected in us. So Lord, do that work in us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text breaks down uh, simply in two metaphors. The first, the Apostle Paul challenges us to put to death sexual sin. And then from there, he actually states reasons why we should put to death those sins. Then he changes metaphors, and he says we're to put off what I'm calling social sins or speaking sins that divide the body. And he again repeats the reasoning behind why ought we put these sins away. And the overarching theme of the passage is really true spirituality, and the true spirituality is that we are to reflect the image of God, that what is to affirm us in our faith is this ongoing um, meta, uh, what is it when a, when a lizard changes color? Yeah, metamorphosis. It just slipped away from me. Metaphor, metamorphosis of more and more of God finding its way from who we are internally, our actual person, to what is actually expressed in our lives, what is seen. And that is a, a progression. Um, where salvation has really three parts. There's uh, 
justification, where we're saved. There's sanctification, where we are learning to live holy. And then there's glorification. And so where we are today is we are in the process of learning how our justification is expressed in our sanctification, is expressed in the revealing of Christ, our new nature to the world. And that is what is to mark us as true spiritual people. It's not the following of the law or existential experiences where angels give us a additional revelation or insight apart from the scripture or rules and regulations. Paul has just said in chapter two that those have no benefit. And so that he begins chapter three and he lays out very perfectly this beautiful idea that we are in Christ. And in Christ there is to be an expression of life that actually removes what isn't of God from our lives. So the apostle Paul begins by saying to us this, he says, therefore, it's building on what we just heard Pat very beautifully say to us last week, we're to put to death sexual sins, we are to put off social sins, we're to put to death sexual sins. Now, Paul is calling us to completely eliminate these from our lives. Now, <clears throat> that's important to understand. When he says put to death, it's not just bring them under control or manage them well, it's to actually extract them from your lives. And so what the spiritual analogy that Paul is trying to lay out from the beginning is this, is he says, with Christ and certain work or your relationship with him, you can't commit halfway. Because it's kind of like dieting and believing that you can still end the day with a half gallon of Blue Bell or a bag of chips. You know what I'm talking about? It doesn't matter whether you're 90% of the day good, and then 10% of the day, you're just feeding the flesh. Now, I've got to say, that, that's oftentimes the way my diet looks. And I, and I have to say, you know, it doesn't work. And you've probably had that experience as well. Now, for a whole lot of us, that's our, that's our Christian experience. 90% of the time, we're living aligned with God's truth, his principles, his precepts. We're, we're living into the spiritual foundation formations of life. And we're doing pretty well. And then temptation comes along, and we beat it about 90% of the time. And then we find ourselves not really experiencing the fruit of the Spirit. And because the fruit of the Spirit doesn't find its way into our lives while the flesh is still being fed. And we get frustrated with God because what he's promised us isn't manifesting itself in our lives when what he's saying, he's saying, what I've provided for you, you're not, you're not appropriating. You haven't learned to live as a free man. You are still living as a slave, understand, still feeding the flesh and indulging yourself in things that aren't of God. And while that's present in your life, that's going to limit my work in your life. And so he says, for those of you who want to go forward, he says, kill sexual sin. Take it out of your life because there is no benefit to you spiritually in holding on to it. There is no benefit at all. There is no life in it. So he says to this, he starts with saying, put off sexual immorality. And this is a broad term speaking of really all kinds of different of, of illicit sexual behaviors. 
Now, God is not opposed to sex. He created it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing, but it's a good thing within the boundaries that he created it for. And he created sex to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And that's the only place that it's appropriate. That's the only place that it's life-giving. That's the only place that it honors God. And outside of that, it is actually a feeding of the flesh, not an honoring of God. God wants you to have a fulfilled, uh, satisfying sex life, but that is something that's reserved for the marriage relationship. And outside of that, it becomes destructive for you, not constructive in any way. And so he's saying, put off all sexual pursuit that involves anything that doesn't, that isn't done in the context of marriage. And then let me add this. And that isn't done between the husband and the wife. Because you can get involved in sexual activity that's self-serving, that doesn't involve your wife and still doesn't involve another person, but is inappropriate because the sexual relationship is to draw the husband and the wife intimately together. And that consummation reaffirms what God has done in joining them in the spirit. And it isn't to be something that actually is done apart from the two, the husband and the wife, in intimacy together. Now, that's why part of this addresses the word his is pornea, and that's the word we get in English, our word pornography from. And so we need to recognize that anything that stimulates you sexually apart from your spouse is inappropriate. And we live in a culture today that has embraced sexuality and its mindset and has approved activity outside of the framework that God has, and it's killing us as a culture, as a people, as a church, because we need to recognize that there is no place for sexual stimulation outside of the marriage bedroom, period. We live in a world today where nine out of 10 boys are exposed to pornographic materials before the age of 18, and this is undermining their ability to understand the beauty and sacredness of sex. And it's destroying how they view women, 30% of all data translated over the internet today is pornographic in, 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 in material. Today in our world, 85% of men and 50% of women watch pornography once a month and do not believe it's inappropriate. Now, we live in a society that has simply you know, rejected God's revelation. And we as a church can't follow that same path. We can't believe the lies that this somehow can be used to increase your intimacy, even when it's between your husband and your wife, because that is a fallacy, and it's wrong. And if it involves an image or a person or a dream or a thought or a concept that isn't your mate and isn't done with your mate, it's inappropriate. Now, I tell you that not to be a killjoy, but to actually bring the joy of the Lord into focus for you. Because the truth is that if you believe anything else, you're going to hurt your intimacy with your spouse or your future spouse in dramatic ways. And the question becomes, what are, who are we going to believe? God or the world? So the apostle Paul goes on, he says, put off impurity with its filthiness or uncleanness. It's a more general term to immorality going beyond the act of uh, the physical act and into the actual mental uh, imagination. 
From there, he says, put off passion or lust or evil desire. And the distinction here between passion and evil is very, very little. It's really kind of Paul's addressing two sides of the same vice, the same struggle. Passion refers more to the sexual desire set loose in the body, and evil desire refers to sexual lust created in the mind. Now, Jesus had some pretty specific words of wisdom in this battle against sexual immorality. In Matthew 5, he said this. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Now, Jesus is using strong imagery just like Paul. Paul is saying, put it to death, kill it, murder it. Jesus is saying, pluck it out or cut it off because it's unhealthy to allow it to remain in your life at any level. And there's some very specific things because this is, this is a huge problem in our culture. So I want to spend just a couple minutes pro, uh, pulling out the insights that Jesus gives us as we tie those back into what the, what the Apostle Paul says. He says, first, recognize the fight is a personal fight. It's your eye. It's your hand. So acknowledge the point that you're struggling with because we're all different. We all have different levels of temptations. We all have different fetishes. We all have different things that stimulate us. And so what are you saying? He says, recognize what's going on in your life, identify it, and deal with it specifically. Secondly, he says this, the fight is a costly fight. He's recognizing that there is real, real risk involved in permitting this cancer to grow inside of you uncontrolled. And so he is saying this, he's saying, cut it off, amputate it, kill it, the apostle Paul says. Be very, very specific. And what he's saying this is your life should not look the same after you've dealt with it. There's no room for it to exist at any level in your life. He's basically saying this, he's saying it is better to live deformed than to live defiling God because there's actually more at risk. And whatever it is, if you have to give up the internet, if you have to give up cable television, if you have to give up going certain places, he's saying that is what you ought to do, regardless of how extreme it sounds. He's saying don't believe the lie that we oftentimes tell ourselves that I can manage this, because there are certain passions that once they have taken root in your life are not manageable, and we're only lying to ourselves to believe that if it's present at any level, it's not going to take over. Then he ends by challenging to say it needs to be permanent. You don't just take a break from these things. You never return to them. He says, cut it off and throw it away. Turn your attention, your passion, your focus, your interest to what is godly, not what is ungodly. Give that energy to your spouse. Give that energy to prayer for your future spouse. Replace 
that longing in your life with what God has provided to satisfy it, and don't settle for its presence in your life at any level. So Paul then moves to really identifying the root of this. And what he says is he says, covetousness is really at the heart of all of these sexual sins. So what is covetousness? Covetousness is a desire to have more. Covetousness is that assumption that all things exist for our own personal benefit. And that's not biblical. Paul has just said in in Colossians chapter 1 that all things were created by God and for him. It's for his glory. It's not for our benefit or for our pleasure. Now, it isn't that God doesn't want to enjoy his creation, but only within the boundaries that he has set for us. So covetousness is the internal sinful desire to saturate saturate ourselves with more and more and more. It's not being content. It's believing that to be happy, I have to have this or that. And it's not being able to be satisfied in my current state of maturation or growth. But it's believing that I, I have and I deserve to have what I want because we put those wants as needs and then we have actually, Paul says, we have dethroned God as as the Lord of our life. Because he says this, he says, Paul equates covetousness with idolatry. The act of everything existing for your pleasures places you in the position of God in your life. All things were created by him and for him and they are for his glory. And when we seek to make it for our, to fulfill our desires, we dethrone God. So the very root of all of this, and this is where this is so helpful, is if you want to uproot these longings and these desires and the expressions, it starts with who is Lord of your life. What do you really live for? Because an idol is something that you believe you can't live without. That without it, you won't be happy. You won't be satisfied. You can't be fulfilled. And what Paul is saying is there's some false beliefs going on, and you've not given Christ the preeminence in your life. You haven't recognized that God is all you need, and God is a benevolent and a generous God, and that he wants to meet all your needs. And if you give him the chance, he will satisfy you, and he will fill you, and he will make your life abundant and and joyful. He will provide for you this fruit of the Spirit, and you will be satisfied. And in that satisfaction, you'll be able to manifest the beauty and the glory of God in your life uniquely. Now, we've... We've talked a lot about this, but I want to pause just a minute. Because William Barclay says this, Paul's addressing sexual sin, but the root of these things, covetousness and idolatry, can really be the root of any sin or struggle in your life. William Barclay wrote this. He says, covetousness is the root of all sin. If it is the desire for money, it leads to theft. It is the, if it's the desire for prestige, it leads to evil ambition. If it's the desire for power, it leads to ruthless tyranny. If it's the desire for a person, it leads to sexual immorality. The reason we sin is not because we've got this psychological disorder. It's because we're not trusting or believing God. And when you believe that God's way is the best way and you incorporate and you draw on the strength and the power to embrace it and to live it out, you will find that that's true. 
because the truth sets us free. It transforms us. And when we choose to believe the lie or to think that we need something other than what God has said us to be in our lives, we make ourselves vulnerable and we lie to ourselves. And it's just like when we're on the physical diet, we're sitting down with that bowl of bluebell ice cream and we're indulging ourselves and we're telling ourselves this is going to be the last time. And in doing that day after day, that diet is causing us to gain weight and moving us further from our goal than lose the weight to become the healthy person. And the same thing happens in our spiritual lives. When we continue to return to the trough of sin that satisfied us before Christ, we steal from ourselves all the benefits and blessings that God has waiting for us if we will choose to live as free men let the chains drop from our lives. Now, the reasons we are to put sexual sins to death, Paul gives two. The first is that the wrath of God is coming on account of these things, and the second is that it does not reflect the work of God in our lives. The wrath of God, now this is very interesting. I think Matt in his prayer says, you know, that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus at the cross. So for Christians, we don't need to fear the wrath of God because the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ. So why does Paul bring up the wrath of God and what is the wrath of God? God's wrath is the active reaction of his nature against all that is contrary to his person, to his holiness, to his being. It is a recoiling of God's entire being. God's wrath is expressed through righteous judgment. And what it does is it reminds us of the holiness of God. And when we see the holiness of God, that should move us to want to manifest or honor God. When we allow these sins to come into our lives, we have lost the horror of offending a holy God. And that should deeply cause us concern in our lives. So where there is no conscience, where there is no fight, where there is never victory, we need to ask, is there actually redemption? Are you a child of God or have you just believed the message as true but not embraced the message as true? I said this already, but we have a tendency to separate our sin from our salvation when our salvation is supposed to separate us from our sin. Now, this is the difference. And the Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans 6. When you preach grace, it's easy for people to conclude that now they have license to sin because God's grace covers my sin. So that I can do what I want without any fear of repercussion because it's all been taken care of by Jesus. And Paul writes... May it never be. That's the complete misinterpretation of God's grace and the gospel and his provision for you in your life. And it's a failure to understand who God is. It's trying to accept the gospel while still keeping yourself on the throne of your life. And the truth is that is not a saving faith. Yeah, that's the realization that I had to come to as an 18-year-old evaluating my life and realizing that what motivates me most of the time is dishonoring to God. And if I'm comfortable with that, there's something wrong. 
And so it really did bring me to the point that I think in my life for the very first time, a genuine repentance and say, God, you're worthy. You're worthy of my aligning my life with you. And I knew then that it was impossible for me in my own strength to do it. And so at some level, if you're trying in your own strength to overcome a sin because of an intellectual understanding of the love and the grace of God, and you continue to follow, that's the problem. Fail. Because you can't do it. And God didn't die just to take you to heaven. And if you think the cross is all about you're going to heaven, you failed to understand the fullness of it. God died to reconcile all things back to himself and to reveal his glory through you uniquely. And when we choose not to surrender ourselves to Christ and make him all of our life, we not only rob God of the glory that he wants seen in our lives, we rob others of seeing God uniquely expressed in us and making our contribution. And the repercussions are huge. And so Paul raises the wrath of God to have us evaluate our attitude towards the holiness of God and understand the horrors of rebellion against God. Then he goes on and he says, it is not only about the wrath of God, but it's about the work of God in your lives. And when you continue to allow sin to work in your life, you're living in your past and not your present reality because God has created you as a new person. And Paul is saying this really in this verse seven, he says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. These are supposed to be past tense. These are supposed to be things that were a part of our life, but now are no longer a part of our life. And Paul is saying this, He's saying, why would anyone who has been made rich return to the slums to live in poverty? How can a new creation act like an old one? <clears throat> Billy quoted Spurgeon this morning. I want, to, I want to quote him again. Charles Spurgeon says this, Christians, what hast thou to do with sin? Hath it not cost thee enough already? Burnt child, will thy play with the fire? When thou hast already been between the jaws of a lion, will thou step a second time into the lion's den? Hast thou not had enough of the old serpent? Oh, be not so mad, so foolish. Did sin ever yield the real pleasure? Did thou find solid satisfaction in it? If so, go back to thine old drudgery and wear the chain again, if it, is, if it delighted thee. But insomuch as sin did never give thee what is promised to bestow, but deluded thee with lies, be not a second time snared by its follow, folly, folly. Be free, and let the remembrance of thine ancient bondage forbid thee from ever returning to it again. And Paul's saying it makes no sense to continue to walk as you were when you've been freed from sin. Then he moves on and he says, we are to put off social sins or speaking sins. And he says this, he says, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. See that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek, 
and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. In verse 8, Paul switches metaphors, and he moves from killing to putting off. The imagery is this. He is saying, just like you discard old, dirty, out-of-style garments, he says you are to discard or take off and throw away what isn't of God and put on the righteousness of Christ. And there's a principle that he will continue that Pat will deal with next week, a principle of putting off vices and putting on virtues, a replacement principle. But this is a beautiful, beautiful imagery of what he is saying that we're going to talk a little bit about in just a minute, a little more about, because it reflects the new and the old, the old and the new. And some clarification there is, I think, helpful to all of us in understanding the battle that's going on in us. So Paul says this, the social sins are anger. Anger is an internal heart resentment that's full of bitterness. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we're to put off anger. Wrath refers to the sudden outbursts of anger in our lives. <clears throat> it's the um, eruptions of anger where we just lose control. Malice is an attitude bent on doing harm to another. It's allowing feelings of hostility and dislike to remain in, a, in us. Slander is blasphemy. It's to speak against someone in such a way as to harm them. An abusive speech is obscene talk intended to hurt or wound somebody else. Now, <clears throat> that's the whole idea of, you know, that so-and-so is such a beep. Yes. You know, they're a real beep. Yeah. You know, and man, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I can say I'm not guilty of that very often anymore. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but that's the kind of stuff that shouldn't characterize a Christian yeah. at all. And Paul goes on and he says this. He's talking about these social sins of these words of the mouth because he's really saying that these damage relationships. And it is healthy relationships which is, which is the, the, the um, pinnacle of what's supposed to reveal Christ in us to the world or through us to the world. And so he's saying these are hugely destructive because they don't actually build the healthy relationships that he's going to end this uh, portion of Scripture in addressing. So he says these really hold up lies. So when we speak ill of each other or feel ill of each other, we are misrepresenting the truth. We are lying about who that person actually is. When believers lie, they imitate Satan more than their Savior. John 8, 44 says this. He says, you are your... You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And what Paul is reminding us is saying, when you lie, you're acting more like Satan than your Savior. And you're undermining the work of God because it is the truth that sets us free and telling the truth is transformational. Now, Paul begins to help us deal with root issues as to our, the challenges in our maturation journey. With sexual sins, he says it's covetousness and idolatry. That's what you've really got to hone in on. With um, social sins, he's, he basically comes back and he says, man, this is all about lying. 
You're lying to others. You're lying. You're not embracing the truth. And when that happens, it's destructive. Now, sometimes those so subtly happen because there's really no such thing as a non-destructive lie, even white lies. And so in reality, when we try to create an image or a false um, reality in the minds of others about where we are, we undermine the whole dynamic of the body that God wants us to actually be living into. Why does James tell us to confess our sins to one another so that we might be healed? Because when we confess ourselves to one another, we actually acknowledge the truth. And actually, what is the first step to solving a problem is what? Recognizing the problem. So when I confess it, I say, this is a problem. And when I confess it to somebody else, I'm inviting their help into the spiritual battle uh, to, to battle with me in prayer and in support and in care and in concern. And so when I step into the light, I actually engage in the provision that God has made. When I choose to walk in darkness, when I choose to try to create an image that isn't true, I leave myself isolated from the help that God wants me to have in the, in the, in the relationships. And as long as I stay there, I leave myself vulnerable to developing attitudes towards others that are inappropriate and wrong. And these cancers work their way out in us and steal from us the benefit of the new life that is ours in Christ. And this whole message is is God has freed you from the, the penalty and the power of sin, and so walk in the new life that you have. Don't continue to return to, way, to the ways you used to live. Recognize that they didn't work and move beyond them because now you have the ability to be the person God has called you and created you to be. And so once again, Paul addresses the reasons why we should put these sins away. He says this in verse 9. He says, Seeing that you have put off the old self with these practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, sin hides the truth of who you are in Christ. So just like you put on a garment and you look a certain way, when you are in the old self, this is, this, is the, this is the sinful, this is the garments for cleaning the garage. This is the garment. By that I mean, in this garment, I'm not overly concerned with rubbing up against dirt because it's already dirty. And uh, I'm living in line with how I am dressed or how I see myself dressed. And so what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, hey, take that off. Because there's a real difference, and I wish I had a white jacket, but I don't. I don't even own one of those. This is as close as I could get. Paul says, clothe yourself in righteousness. Dress like the person you are in Christ, the new man. Now, here's the difference. Here's the imagery. Stephen, my son's getting married Thanksgiving weekend, and we're going to dress up, and we just did the whole, you know, men's warehouse thing, and, uh, and it was hard to uh, spend that kind of money on something you'll wear one time. But here's the whole idea. When you're dressed for that occasion, you're real careful that you don't bump into any dirt. Now imagine the bride in her wedding gown and why, how careful she is not to expose herself 
to anything that would tarnish or dirty the gown. And that's really what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, God has clothed you in righteousness, and you ought to be very careful about what you expose yourself to because that dirt will, will damage or will tarnish the beauty of who you actually are. You are righteous, so live as a righteous person. The other thing that it does is it helps us really embrace the whole idea of who we are. You see, for so many of us, we really struggle with embracing the truth that you are righteous, that you are blameless, that you are holy, that you are not a sinner any longer. You're simply a saint that sins. And there is a huge difference because the DNA of something determines what it is. You can train a monkey to act like a human, but that doesn't make it a human. Its DNA still says it's an ape. A Christian, regardless of how you behave, is a saint. Now, you are only going to be satisfied when you see yourself for who you are and begin to live into the destiny that is yours. The whole reason you're not satisfied is because you are continuing to act like what you're not. You're choosing to waddle in the mud rather than soar as an eagle. And you're satisfied with it. And Paul is saying, don't let yourself be deceived that salvation is only about the, your future home in heaven. It's about so much more. And if you simply got saved to go to heaven, man, I want to challenge you to say, are you really there? Because eternity is not something you wait for. It's something you step into today. Eternal life is knowing God. It is taking your life to a whole new level of reality and existence. It is living with the power to actually fulfill the purpose that God created you for. And that is life-giving. And it's transformational in the world. And when we settle to simply be satisfied with heaven as our home and we let ourselves feast on things that are unhealthy for us spiritually and rob and steal from us the love and the joy and the peace and the fruit of the Spirit that God wants flowing in our lives generously, we are so far short of where God takes us. So Paul says... When we fail to walk in the righteousness that is ours, it's as if we're continuing to live in those clothes that we wear when we wanted to clean the garage. And God's invited you to a wedding feast. And so he says, step into the garments that reflect who you are and what I have for you. The second is this, sin destroys the unity that is ours in Christ. Now, Paul has done something here really, really masterful. Because what he has been doing through all of this has been drawing parallels between what we did find satisfaction in and where we ought to find our satisfaction in. And now what he does is he's saying, he's saying through these social sins or through these speaking sins, we undermine the unity, we damage the relationship that is to be ours in Christ because in Christ, God has provided the ability to bridge the divisions that humanity has created. And he has made us one. Now what he does in this is he moves through this list is there's four different classifications. And he's saying in Christ, these have been broken down. You have the ability to be one and in that unity to reflect the beauty of God's power and presence relationally. And that is an enormous witness to the world. But at the same time, what he does is he identifies the things that we once put our identity in. 
And what he's saying, he's saying your identity is no longer to be in these things, but it's to be in Christ. And as long as you're returning to finding your identity and your acceptance in the old ways, you're going to be short of finding what you're looking for, and you're going to continue to search. So here's what he says. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is in all. Christ is all and is in all. So he goes through this. The four characterizations, he says Greek or Jew. Most of us have found our standing in our race. It's where we've identified. I am a what? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Dutchman. And in America today, there's a whole lot of that going on. And we're identifying in these divisions. I'm this, I'm that. And Paul's saying, don't go there. Don't put your identity in what you were. See yourself for who you are. And then he says this, circumcised or uncircumcised, we used to find security in religion because we thought that it satisfied our sin. We thought it removed the penalty of our sin, which is a lie. And so how many of us identify us as you know, Presbyterians, Baptists, Assembly of God, or even Jehovah Witness, Muslim, Buddhist? He's saying, man, don't go there. Don't identify you yourself in a religious sect because that's of the old man. And then he says this. He says, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian. These are cultural divisions that provided us status. And Paul is saying your status and your standing and your security needs to rest fully in Christ, not in any of these other man-made divisions that we have looked to to give us significance in the world. And the last is that slave or free, which is society's divisions of significance, of worth, of value. And Jesus is saying all of these barriers, all of these divisions have been broken down in me. And when you choose to engage in sexual sin, you end up falling back into dividing and huddling in your tribes. Now, I don't know this for certain, but I think that was taking place in the Colossian church. I think these false teachers were starting to get tractions with different groups of people. And they were beginning to, to quarrel amongst themselves about who was right and who was wrong. And they were beginning to identify with the false teaching versus the truth. And Paul's saying, don't go there. Don't allow yourself to be divided because in Christ there is no divisions. And in the world, there are really only two divisions that really matter. There are those that are in Christ and there are those who are in Adam. And we shouldn't see people through any other lens. Only a person who is righteous and those who are unrighteous and those who are unrighteous, it ought to break our hearts that they haven't embraced or understood or heard the truth of the gospel. And that ought to move us to share our story for his glory to give God the chance 
to woo him, woo them to himself and to save their soul because that is the only hope for humanity. Yes. Is the gospel, is the provision that Christ has made. He's saying when you divide, you deny that Christ is all and in all. When you look to find your fulfillment in anything that is outside of God's provision, you are setting yourself short and you are believing lies that are keeping you from the truth. The truth, again, is this. You are in Christ. God has provided you through his death, burial, and resurrection everything that you need to reflect his image his character, his person, to free you completely from any vice, sin, struggle that you have in your life that is tarnishing the beauty of God's uh, manifestation of his glory in your life. So the Apostle Paul is saying this. Is Christ all for you? Do you believe that you need anything other than Jesus to be satisfied? To be content? And if you do, you've believed a lie. And the sin struggle is really a faith issue. Are we going to believe God? Or are we going to believe a lie? Now, in a group this size... There are many who are struggling with some of the very specific things that Paul addressed. And what I want you to hear is you're not a bad person. You're just deceived. And I want to encourage you to have the courage to apply the truth to live in the freedom, to put to death, to take off anything that isn't of God. Because whatever you think you're getting from it, it's actually an albatross holding you back from all that God has from you. And the most courageous thing that you can do is to confess the presence of the sin, to steal the power of the sin from your life. Because as long as you continue to hold to it, it will have a power over you that God has given you the strength to break. And if you desire to go forward in your walk with God, it starts with hearing the Spirit move in your life today and letting go and putting to death and stepping into the provisions that God has made It's sharing that sin, confessing it, and accepting the prayer and support and love of the rest of the body of Christ to walk with you into the new life that God's called you to. So just showing up to church on Sunday isn't going to take you the full measure of where God wants you to go because God has connected us and made us a body and here's the reality. Your struggle is my struggle and my struggle is yours because we are all in Christ together. And the witness and power and manifestations that God wants to do through us in a body depends on all of us 
committing to being the individuals he's created us to be so we can be the body he's called us to be. And so I plead with you as a brother, as one who wants to see God be able to pour out his full presence, power, and promise on us so that we can be his instruments to touch this community and the world. Let go of the lie. Step into the light. Don't satisfy the flesh any longer because it's stealing from you the fruit of the Spirit. And that's a decision that you and God have to make. But we're going to close in just a minute. We're going to have elders up here to pray. And I want to encourage anyone who's struggling in any area to accept the provision that God has made where other godly individuals will come alongside you and love you through whatever the struggle is. And if it's too much to come forward afterwards, grab somebody during the week. Connect to a community group. Give me a call and let's start walking together in a discipleship relationship that will help you appropriate the truth of God's word into your life. So that's what we're here for. That's what it took in my life. I had to finally acknowledge that God, I've been wanting to go to heaven, but wanting all the, what I thought were benefits this side of heaven that were all sinful. And it wasn't until I acknowledged that and finally said, Lord, I'm willing to let you have all of who I am because you're worthy of that. That my spiritual life finally turned a corner and took off. And it took off to such a degree that I stand here today because I became convinced that there were so many like me who'd lived religious existences with no power. And I so longed to see that not be any of anyone else's reality. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.